This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Like the Kokako, the saddleback or tieke belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today uh, we're having Victor Billow and David Eagleton. David Eagleton's our uh, present uh, poet laureate, and he grew up in Auckland and Fiji. And he has uh, been an art critic, writer, and editor, as well as a poet. And he tries to investigate the idea of contemporary culture versus highbrow culture, such as poetry is sort of expected to be, unfortunately, when you consider Honi Tefari and others who are great poets. And Victor Billow is a former co-leader of the Alliance and an electoral candidate for the Alliance Party. He's also known as a writer, musician, unionist, editor of Critic Magazine. He has written a, a variety of forms, including poetry and fiction as well well as features in journalism. This is an ode to poetry and politics or politics and poetry. Welcome to Community or Chaos, David and Victor. (coughs) Kia ora. Hi there. You both had different life experiences, but both have experienced life as a working man and as an educated professional person. Could you talk to us about how these experiences have molded your outlook on life and your written work? David first, if you like. Um, uh, Sure. Well, um, I mean, for me, being a poet is something I've always aspired to be um, right from when I was at high school um, and was introduced to uh, poetry there uh, by various teachers and, um, and poets, including James K. Baxter, and Hone Tufari and Sam Hunt, so New Zealand tradition of poetry, plus the um, classical tradition of poets like Tennyson and um, Gerald Manley Hopkins and, and so forth. So I've always had that kind of interest in, in, in writing poetry and, and reading poetry. Um, and um, But then I found when I uh, left school and um, thought of going to university that I was out of out of sympathy and out of, out of sync with the um, English that was being taught in the English department at that time, they were just sort of um, gone to the to very much towards an American approach to criticism 
and towards poetry and poets like William Carlos Williams, um, whom I actually found it quite difficult to, to um, relate to, were um, extolled um, as, as models. And furthermore, poetry was, was criticised um, or written about in the form of um, essays, which um, drew on theories that I didn't really agree with. So it was it became a very theoretical approach to literature. And so I, I, I didn't I didn't stay at university at all. I, I just was kind of not revolted, but certainly um, or repulsed, but certainly um, very uh, made very anxious and um, uneasy about what was being taught and what was considered literature. So I, I went and got a job in a factory, and basically that's kind of what I did for the next few years as, 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 as working-class jobs. So I was from a working-class family, and they were quite aspirational. They were hoping that I would um, go through university and, and become an academic or something like that. But I found that the, the disconnect between where I was living in South Auckland in a working-class suburb and travelling into the university in uh, Auckland City was uh, too great. Um, most of the students were middle-class and from the North Shore and uh, Remuera and, and other wealthy areas. Um, at that time, it seemed to me that um, I, I felt displaced by that. And um, also because of my background growing up in Fiji, I couldn't really relate to what was happening there. So it was more about going out into into the workforce and trying to find my way through that. And so I started writing poems, which were about the counterculture and um, living in Ponsonby uh, amongst uh, the working class uh, and, and sort of a uh, flats and just surviving and working in a shoe factory and so on and so forth. So um, that's been my perspective on New Zealand life, really, uh, ever since. It's pretty much that. Um, so the parallel track of, of having an academic career is something I've sort of watched from afar, not really been part of. All right. I remember once trying to go to a summer uh, session on poetry and was told right away that I couldn't talk about, write about politics, I couldn't write about religion. And I wondered, if I can't write about anything meaningful, why write, in a sense? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that was what the beats were all about. That was what Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti said, you know, and, and Gary Snyder. I mean, they were they said, well, well rather than following the, the high uh, academic criticism of Lionel Trilling and the New York um, um, universities, they sort of uh, were more interested in the beat, mm. beatnik lifestyle and and the sort of dropouts and people who hit the road, Jack Kerouac and so forth, um, and talking about, you know, the politics of the, their time um, and what was going on there. Um, uh, we had a bit of that in New Zealand. I mean, James K. Baxter was a great exemplar, and, of course, Holiday Too Far as well. So they were really my examples to follow. Victor, what's your experience with this? Oh, um, well, I think that um, some some similarities there to David and others uh, other things quite different um i uh arrived i grew up in dunedin um obviously so that that is a, a slightly different environment from auckland um uh and um my dad was a english immigrant and my mum was a uh, a local who well as you could say her her family had been were Scots immigrants who'd been here for a uh, hundred years or so. Um, so, um, and that family background was reasonably um, uh, working class, I guess. Um, 
Dad was a uh, well, he's, both my parents are still alive. Dad um, was a, a, a printer and had gone to school very early. He'd grown up in the Channel Islands um, and he'd been born when they were under occupation there. So he'd had a, quite a rough start to life. Um, and my mum had gone to university for a, a little while, kind of the first person really in her direct family to do that, but that, that hadn't worked out um, because she, she found it hard and she didn't have those kind of connections. So um, I was quite lucky that I got the opportunity to go to university here, which I did. I didn't do particularly well. Um, I did okay. I didn't really get English. <laughs> Seems to be a common theme. Um, and, so, and, and the type, type of academic approach to it that was required. Um, maybe I was just a bit young and immature. So after, but I ended up getting a degree in political studies, which is kind of, um, you know, obvious, I guess. Um, but I did, um, yeah, I, I mean, after that, I spent a long time trying to find my kind of uh, place in the world. And, um, of course, at that time, the 1990s, it was very high unemployment and everything. And it was hard to hard to get any type of work. So I kind of floated around New Zealand and even overseas and eventually kind of settled doing kind of journalistic work and ended up working for trade unions um, and I do work for the Maritime Union and the Rail and Maritime Transport Union. So they kind of ended up, uh, I guess that's a kind of connection into that world there. Um, but, I, you know, I, yeah, I mean, that's my background. So I guess that's influenced my writing and my political views. Um, but I, yeah, I've always felt a bit kind of, to be honest, um, uh, between worlds, as it were, I guess I think it's probably a common sense for a lot of people, but don't really belong to any of those worlds, worlds entirely that I associate with. That's a pretty big club, actually. <laughs> yeah. So that's my, anyway, that's my, um, where, where I'm coming from. Well, have you noticed that we live in a capitalist era in which the former Prime Minister David Longy declared that inequality is the engine of economic growth, and some who have studied capitalism have seen it as dependent on eternal growth, eternal growth, and economic exploitation labor. Could you both talk about how this has influenced your view of the world and your work? And well, I grew up... Like, um, a couple of poems after that. With it. Sure. I mean, I grew up um, in the 19... Uh, through the period where New Zealand went from full employment to the um, transformations of Rogernomics um, into today's very polarized and uh, information uh, overloaded era where um, there are many different sort of schools of opinion. But um, essentially, I grew up in a, in a fairly, um, a fairly uh, um, monocultural or, or institutional New Zealand where everything was controlled by central authorities. Um, and uh, because we did have full employment and we had sort of, we were living on the, the sheep's back, as it, as it were, and, and uh, had wool and, and milk and all those things. And then in the oil um, crisis of the early 1970s, things gradually started to change, and uh, Britain joined the um, European Economic Community and so on and so forth. And, and then also in the late... 70s, early 80s, we had a, we had a new social consciousness emerging, um, the anti-Springbok uh, tour protests and uh, those kinds of things and uh, a new sense of what New Zealand was. So I was very much uh, um, caught up in that and, um, you know, the protest marches, the, the, the feeling of the time that we could influence events. And then suddenly out of the right, out of the right field, as it were, came um, 
came uh, um, Milton Friedman and um, the Chicago School and people like Alan Gibbs who um, made enormous profit out of uh, out of privatising uh, what seemed to belong to everyone at one time. And, and we've sort of lived with that legacy of that ever since. And so by the 1990s, a lot of cynicism and a sense of helplessness and uh, passiveness had begun to develop. And um, and now we've moved into a very atomized era where it's all about yourself and um, your own uh, goals and aspirations and the idea of uh, a, a, a sort of society united to um, working together is um, something we sort of have to strive and struggle to to achieve. So I, I kind of write about those things in my poetry. I mean, Lawrence Ferlinghetti said that, you know, poetry should 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 be about salvation, should be about saving the world. Um, and I mean, she said that a bit of tongue-in-cheek. And my poems are often ironic and tongue-in-cheek uh, when they <clears throat> discuss those kinds of things. This poem's called Age of Outrage. Here, unhappiness is a too warm beer. We're a pub's parliament of booze artists. Chooses its liquor cabinet with care. Voodoo economists and cargo cult believers treat bank managers as the nation's backbone, artfully shuffling credit card information as if it's magic all done with mirrors. Pigeons gurgle, bellbirds carol, cash or credit. The level playing field slippery slopes have the whack and biff of tax GST that just might empty out your do-re-mi. Pollies whose tongues fill their mouths, use them to extrude right around the room. The press pack drools at raw mince briefings. Political parties yelling themselves to death need to get their heads red, not rend garments. She makes the ears of those who can't count into a purse. He surrounds himself with yes-men in shiny suits, with busts, moulds, casts of prime ministers past. Devil's advocates release their weasel words, only to cut off dissent with flick of a switch. The man from Bluff arrives with his counter-bluff, Check ballot box remarks, teeth that glow in the dark. The lethal self-confidence leap in a harker face-off, an old story of a New Zealand liver, perfused with wine. The politician who paces away, swivels dummies, then passes the buck, muttering good luck. From farm gumboots and a crisp white shirt to a checkered career in the raconteur racket, he's gushing like a pivot irrigator. Caterpillar tracks tear up the green temple veils, the rising gorge through which supply trucks grind. Hysterical New Zealand, frozen in a solid gold hell of ships last haul at auctions off Orange Ruffy. Middle of the road as glide their microlites through the gender non-specific Taranaki gate. Some drag out a keg of Petty Fog's home brew. Some hole up with a cask of Cabernet Sauvage to watch a little light friction live on telly. The advisory warnings of an age of outrage. Okay, thanks for that, David. Victor, uh, what's your take on all this? Oh well, yeah, it's a it's a it's a big topic, um, but I have to say that yeah, I've um, I've been engaged with that political side of things. Um, in fact, um, the path I've taken for for many years, I kind of drifted a bit away from um, writing and, and was kind of involved in political activism and so forth, which was a, a good experience in lots of ways, but disillusioning in others. Um, I think, but I, my feeling on where we're at now is that uh, obviously we're in a very um, unusual time in history. Um, the thing which concerns me a little bit about New Zealand at the moment is that there is a great kind of a sense of, um, 
I guess, uh, social pressure and which is rising up and, and uh, anger and, and discontent, um, which is kind of expressing itself in some pretty malevolent or perhaps just strange ways. Um, and uh, really, I'm a kind of, it, 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 I, I very early on, I kind of adopted a kind of a socialist kind of philosophy um, in the broad sense of the word. And um, I have to say, I think probably 30 years of, of that, and I'd say we're, we're continuing down a very different path from that. It certainly is the new New Zealand. And I kind of like have memories of that older New Zealand, which David alluded to. Um, I'm a little bit younger, but I can certainly remember, um, you know, relatives and, and the kind of life that people led in the 70s and 80s was quite quite radically different to what came afterwards and the whole cultural mental mindset of people has completely changed. So that's something that um, uh, occurs and um, I, I, I like to write about a bit and now I've kind of focused on writing in the last few years a bit more um, that those themes are coming out. Um, maybe I could just um, sure. follow David's lead and do a um, read a poem too. Um, this one's a, a new one. It hasn't been published anywhere um, as yet. Um, and it deals with some of the themes we've been talking about, maybe in a slightly uh, elusive way, not completely direct, but you can be the judge. It's called Before Dawn. In the night of rain, bright jackets flash against solemn hulls and wharves. In warehouses where there is no night, where call centres murmur ecstatically, where an evanescent glow leaks from screens and networks are restless with cold energies, where nodes are sprinkled across dark plains, humming with latency, numinous and sinister, where querulous alarms cry in shadows cast by a sodium glare on concrete hectares, the hours stripped of time, the heat drawn from youth, and we are formless, divided and scattered by the dialects of power and capital, by invisible lines, by resources, by exigencies. This devil and God enmeshed on the heaving fevered chest of the world, a winged creature squats unmolested, summoned from the complexity of our needs. Yet there is great confusion and agitation. Reefs bleed away their dream of colour. Typhoons thrash humid coasts relentlessly. The monster grins, inhales, world eater. Everything consumed, leaving foul silt. Parasite tendrils curve cruel, barbed teeth affixed to the world's arteries. The gates of paradise are sealed. Just the more of arriving dawn remains as a strange and terrible day arrives into being to make us what we must become. Well, that's good. I might read one just for fun. And it's called, oh, I'm going to read two just for fun. Journeying. Journeying into a life, uh, journeying into an age of tribulation, our troubles not afflicted on us by divine will, but by human will, human greed. No divine plan, no divine love, no divine creator would devise a system based purely on greed, with never, never enough to feed its greed. Its appetite swallows up the world, life, humanity, swallows up the future. Its battle cry is freedom. It's reality, unfree, unfree to question, unfree to change the system that knows only greed. Who will we journey with in this time of tribulation? What will give us the courage 
the generosity to love, to change, to say no to an age of extinction. Feel life flowing out, flowing out from the center, from the divine. Life flowing out in abundance. To know the heart of God, the universe. Feel. Feel fellow pain, fellow grief. Feel joy, joy in abundance. Know. Know that love which restores the universe. That love which gives us the courage to say we instead of me. And the other one, ring them bells. Ring out the time. Ring in the changes. Ring out greed and hypocrisy. Ring in love, generosity, and compassion. Ring out the power of the few. Ring in democracy, the power of the many. Ring in the citizen, the common person. Ring out the destruction of the earth. Ring in the power of love and care for the planet. Ring out the economic weapons of death. Ring out complacency in the midst of death. Ring in love of the ordinary, the many, the creepy crawlies, the life of the earth. In the love of life is the preservation of the earth. Ring out the power of wealth and greed. Ring in the power of love, the power of justice and mercy. Ring in the changes. Ring in the simple gifts. Ring in jubilee. The whole earth rejoice. Rejoice in hope, in hope for what is not yet. I wasn't actually intending to do that, but I did. <laughs> My apologies. Uh, Victor, where are we going from here? Um, well, that was, a, that was a, what do you call it? I felt that was a kind of a, a little bit of a Walt Whitman kind of an inspiration in there. I don't know, Marvin, I, I, felt, I, I felt that kind of a, that um, inclusion of everything. So, no, that, that's good. Um, well, yeah, um, I think that uh, that's, that's another interesting question. I um, uh, yeah, I find it hard to answer because I think that um, in some sense um, I'm I don't think we go to a very very good place. I think that um, possibly um, that those political questions, those economic questions. Um, we're heading into a very dark time, and I don't actually know if there's actually any resistance or opposition to that that I can see that's particularly credible. Um, uh, the opposition that is there has been completely compromised, I think. So I'm kind of like a, I don't want to kind of be, uh, give a kind of negative kind of cast to it, but that's just, I think, an objective view of where things are at. But you have to continue on, and I think that, um, I think, it's interesting with that. I see a lot of interesting um, art and poetry at the moment. Seems to be going through a bit of a revival with young people. Um, it's quite amazing to watch the amount of um, uh, stuff that's being produced and, and of, of good quality. Um, a lot of it, uh, not all of it. It's just the the, uh, the age old thing. But there's a lot of poetry out there, and uh, a lot of it's very political. Um, and a lot of the politics are stuff that I don't quite understand or get. I think that that is an indication of me becoming um, middle-aged and not knowing where it's at anymore. But, um, yeah, interesting times. David? Well, I, I take the long view. I think um, we have to, uh, we, we sort of, we, we live our lives forward, but we make sense of them by looking back and the patterns that um, form uh, and we kind of realise that we're there all along don't become obvious until until later on. 
Um, and I certainly think that we are in a con- continuum and this whole era really um, centres on the 1960s and as a time of protest. Um, if you consider Ukraine right now and you consider the position of South Vietnam uh, in the 1960s, we can see a lot of similarities there where um, the attempt to establish democracy in South Vietnam uh, needed a lot of American uh, military might to prop it up. Um, Ukraine has some similarities with that. Um, and I think that um, we could say that, um, you know, the, and the, the, old, the old Cold War has been revived and we now have <clears throat> another episode in that, in that ongoing um, dichotomy uh, between the, the old Soviet Union, the new Russia, and um, and China, Red China, um, which uh, of course backed the uh, North Vietnamese in the, in the 1960s, um, and so you've got these ongoing geopolitical considerations which we kind of all caught caught up in and swept up, and we we hardly even know ourselves what's happening at the time. We're sort of in a kind of dark, but um, it becomes clearer as time goes by. And, and, and certainly if you look back, um, and that's what history teaches. And so I'm, I'm very preoccupied with, with those patterns because they, they, kind of, they, kind of so- they kind of soothe and calm you in a way because mm-hmm. there's an inevitability. It's almost like Zen Buddhism. You realise that these things are going to happen and no matter what, we strive and we struggle and we, we seek change. We seek to, to radicalise ourselves and to, and to make change. I mean, the Occupy movement of 2010-2011 sought to um, bring down Wall, Wall Street um, after the great financial crash of 2008. Um, that has kind of turned into the um, Syrian uprising of 2013-2014. That was crushed by Putin and um, Belshazzar al-Hazad and uh, Hazad, um, the leader of Syria in, in the 2017. And so they turned their attention to um, Ukraine, which is where we are at the moment. So, I mean, these things are interconnected. Um, and so I've written a poem called The End of History, which is quite a long poem, but it's and it's also it's also not true because there's no such thing as the end of history. It's merely merely an episode has has uh, has finished and then it all begins again. So it's a kind of a continuum there, and um, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm interested in is is the way things flow along like a great river. Okay, go ahead with that. Um, so this poem is actually quite riverine, um, and um, it's a poem that I wrote um, this year. Um, in response to the events in Ukraine, I mean, in, in a way, we were all sort of taken by by surprise that that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. But at the same time, there's a sense of inevitability about it. And this poem kind of probes that. The end of history. In 1989, when the fall of Berlin's wall chiseled away loose masonry, bought promise for humanity as tank men stood tall in Tiananmen Square. Dignity seemed worth more at the end of the Cold War than ever before. Lovers kissed for cameras which made every photograph special like a bouquet, while wires that held the whole shebang upright were hidden well away. They placed white carnations and rifle muzzles. They dumped Kalashnikovs for bumpers of champagne. They waved banners and they beat the snare drum. They climbed to the top of decline and fall. The fix was in, nothing for it but to swim. 1989, when the world wide web's pipe dream was lit. Telexes hiccup, telephones tittered, faxes coughed, though so many were soon to return, and coffins from whatever war was next. Some had paint stripper to remove the pain, some smooshed their wanted ancient grain. So Galahad rode in with leather apron on, making light of the massacre, the heavy weather, the forked lightning, the stack of stooks and stubble scorched for yonks. Choppers prepared for evacuation, citizens rejoiced in satellites holding hands. 
blindly high on their own resolution across the ocean and down in the deeps, whose dungeons opened and released the fates and bubbles of oxygen that seemed Herculean. Yesterday's progress ended and was rebooted. Deplorables became renewable. Edibles became incredible. Assemblies clanked through flung open gates. And, and you will know us by our toppled hopes. The flogged scars and stripes that blessed the bloody flag. We were going forward the damned on our five-year plan and spirit of prayer to da start us to paradise with lassoed monuments and new statues raised. But hope is the thing that scatters through tarred and feathered streets. As tear gas arrives and water cannon swings, there were human pyramids and plagues of new missiles. Jogging shoes hung from gallows. The blow-up globe was punctured and hissed with escaping breath as another dream began to count down to liftoff. And then we were stuck in the 1990s with a long night coming on and very few left to sing Revolution's song. All right. Well, I'm going to play some music and then we'll come back to uh, politics and poetry.
That was the, from Children of Darkness from the best of Mimi and Richard Fremi in the 60s at a time not too different from our time. Now, it seems to me one of the major differences between our time in the 60s and maybe our time in any time is you have this combination of the a dominance of economic classes and the dominance of power and empire from various sources, but you also have an economic, I mean, uh, an environmental crisis with its own feedbacks and its own nature, which is fed by our economic system. And it seems to me you also find that um, all the major powers resist change and make sure any real change that might challenge them doesn't happen. Am I being too pessimistic here? Hello? Uh, well, uh, in a way, I, I think that, that you, you, it's about diagnosis what's going on. And it's as you say, it's very complex now because we've got um, market forces supposedly in play, which um, uh, sort of we all bow down to. And uh, but what are market forces? They're sort of an abstraction. They don't really exist. It's actually about power plays behind the scenes. And, you know, you have people like Rupert Murdoch controlling um, media, right-wing media, and a form of propaganda. So, I mean, he was directly responsible for Brexit, for example, and the chaos in the UK at the moment, um, and similarly in, the, in, the, in Australia, right up until recently, he was uh, pulling the strings of the government. Um, and so you have these other figures and corporates, um, as much as great power blocks. Um, so governments can't really do very much at this point, it seems to me. Um, one of the few places where authoritarian governments are successful, of course, is a, the former communist countries. Um, they, they've kind of used this um, authoritarian capitalism to get their way. But we, we have democracy, and so everyone gets a chance to have, put, their, put their two cents in. Um, so so my, my feeling about this is, um, you know, the, the, the immense complexity has to be broken down into individual struggles about certain things. Um, the environment's obviously a major a way that we can we can um, react uh, and be seen um, as uh, Jacinda Ardern has kind of stressed that, or you know, um, and, and it's kind of the green policies that, um, that of the Green Party and so forth. I mean, these these kinds of things are, are ways that New Zealand can make its presence felt around the world. Um, yeah, uh, that's, that's Actually, sort of what, what David, I'm thinking I'm at the moment. Big to disagree with you about some of this because I think. The United States had a had a chance to make a fairly big change, and the Demo- the leaders of the Democratic Party, this this center center so called center left party in the United States, the leaders of that party chose to um, fear Bernie Sanders, a Democratic socialist who would be mild in Europe to fear him more than uh, Donald Trump. They made a choice they'd rather have Donald Trump 
and put in a candidate that couldn't beat Donald Trump than to have Bernie Sanders. And in the UK, you had the same situation. You had a fairly radical leader of the Labour Party <coughs> who was destroyed basically by his own party. Not that he didn't make mistakes. So, and I also wonder if some of the anger you get in the world as expressed in an authoritarian right-wing way doesn't come from the fact that the working class, when it comes to politics, has no really nobody to speak for them or nobody. Um, you've you've got intellectuals on one side, and then you've got the financial interests on there, but you don't have anybody really speaking for ordinary people. Uh, Victor. Um, yeah, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that um, being in, having been involved in what you could describe as kind of working class or socialist politics for a long time, I mean, the, re the reality is, is that um, the working class don't necessarily approve of socialism or left-wing no. ideas. I mean, the but, working class are often... But they do know that nobody is speaking for them. Well, yes, the thing is, uh, the, the problem is, is that they may... You know, I mean, that, that, that's the million-dollar question, because the question has to be asked is that there's actually nothing really stopping... I mean, I, I'm involved in the socialist society and, and unions. And so there's nothing stopping the average person in New Zealand from from expressing a left-wing viewpoint. I mean, within reason. I mean, obviously, we live in a capitalist society, and it, it helps if you've got a kind of, uh, if you subscribe to the status quo viewpoint, you're probably going to do better. But we're not living in the, what I'd describe as a totalitarian state. No. So the thing is, is that, there must be a reason why working class people or the majority of people um, don't support the socialist politics that, that I might think are the answer to the problems. And I think that's where we're at with the socialist ideas at the moment, to get into that, go down that rabbit hole's uh, gas. But I think we need to go right back to the beginning and, and review you know, we've got all these ideas here. I mean, the thing which fascinates me is is the number of books and studies and 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 this is having a crack at academic, the academic world. I mean, there's this enormous amount of production going on in, in universities and things with all sorts of ideas and analysis of the system, where it's wrong and so forth. But it has absolutely no effect, apparently, on the everyday functioning of the actual economy and society. So you kind of have, um, it's not like there's no ideas here and it's not like there's, uh, you know, um, it's very hard. I mean, the thing is, is the ideology of the system is very hard to um, beat down. And I think that, um, yeah, it's an interesting, <laughs> I don't know what the way around it is. I think it's a, but we have to give up on the idea that, that working class people dislike socialism because it's patently obvious that they don't. They have, they do occasionally, but um, a lot of work, most working class people I know um, are certainly not as socialist as I am.
uh, they might they might like the idea of a secure job and a well-off life, but they think that it can be delivered by the Labour National Party. Okay. So um, I don't think it's true. But I mean, I think the thing is, is that um, to struggle with these ideas and to get a, a way forward politically, um, I think that we need to go back to review some first principles about what it means, uh, socialist ideas or those uh, ideas, and, and try to... Um, just not allow ourselves to get into this delusion that it's, you know, that people just don't, you know, want the opportunity because I don't think a lot of people are interested in left-wing ideas at the moment. Um, I, I, but, you know, that's just my perspective. I could be a bit jaded because I deal with it every day. I agree with you that working people aren't, aren't uh, impressed by socialism at the moment, but I also believe that a lot of ordinary people do feel unrepresented, do feel left out, alienated to a certain extent. And uh, they right now tend to go to the popular right instead of socialism. Though I think um, Corbyn, in a, to some extent, and Bernie Sanders proved that, particularly younger people, you could, if you had... Um, you could make a dent in this if you were allowed to. Yes, yes. Well, no, that's probably, that's probably true. And it's interesting that the so-called um, center-left parties uh, were the ones that uh, held them back. It wasn't the opposition parties that held Corbyn and uh, Bernie Sanders from trying to make a change. That, that's true. Do we um? Do we have? I I know we've got limited time here. I'm just wondering. Do we have another time time for another couple of poems? Maybe yeah, let's just, have another couple. You well, I, I've it. got one. Okay. I don't, I don't, and I'm, I'm going to ask that. David for Squillionaire after that one. Right. <laughs> okay. okay, I'll just quickly Go read ahead. this one. Um, this one's called uh, Snow Country, so it's a kind of a almost a science fiction poem. I don't know if it's getting into some terrible uh, zone here, but here it is. Snow Country, the negations of the place, raw perimeter is scarred, wounds of blown ragged rock punched in the coast. The diesel stench reminds of cause and effect. A new refugee ship wends through the chessboard of shards. Machines bite at the flanks of mountains. Syringes probe and plunge mineral veins. Dark flecks hover, drone feeds, streaming back to the hungry ghosts. We work ant-like figures in our filthy safety wear. In grey concrete halls, we tend the gardens, plastic vats slimed with algae. We cultivate proteins and throw slop to locusts. We are beyond hate. The old cities have long since burned. The jade powder of their smashed windows mixed with blood. The passions of grief have settled. There were the first children, now we are the last, forget by you. The worst is the terrible hope that keeps us all through winter, the murmuring in the close air of the shelters. The night is old and, and inhuman. There are reports of war. You might ask, where are the children? Above the orbital habitats of billionaires flicker silently. 
so that was um, just a, a part of a, a longer poem, but it was really just dealing with a kind of a, a vision of, of the future where Antarctica has become settled by humans as a response to climate change. Um, and there's some references in there um, to things like orbital habitats of billionaires, which, uh, you know, maybe a little bit science fiction-y, but are, are certainly not outside um, possible, the realm of possibility. So that's uh, an environmental uh, uh, poem there. So I'll um, leave it with that one. Okay. Uh, David, could you read Squillionaire? Uh, which poem? Squillionaire. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so this is a poem which... Uh, um, yeah, oh, well, actually, I don't have it here. Uh, oh, I'll <laughs> read it uh, for you if you want. Right. And... Uh, and now I can't find it. I'll just have a look for it. Um, yeah, no, I don't have it here. Um, oh, well. But, I mean, the Squillionaire is a poem which, in a way, is no more than a cartoon, a squib, <laughs> and it's about um, the idea that the, the very wealthy are different from you and I because they have more money and they can do, get away with much more, uh, you know, ultra-high net, ultra net worth individuals um, who are building iceberg basements in the centre of London and places like Mayfair, um, where they have these enormous underground uh, sort of palaces, um, and that they can get um, they can get all kinds of things done by just leaning on the government. Well, to a certain extent, that's been un undone by the uh, the uh, move against the ol oligarchs um, in the past few months. So things are in a state of transition there. So with 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 Squillionaire, it's it's part of an ongoing um, preoccupation of mine to do with this whole idea of um, the economy a market value and and classes a class structure i mean i'm very much a product of the of the class system um in new zealand and i, I know it because i felt it as a, as a as a physical pressure tangible influence on me as a child and um growing up um and when you say that the working class is aspirational it's um, more interested in property and and you know buying four wheel drives and and uh, and suvs and so forth and 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 getting ahead um you know we call that we call those sort of bogans for want of a better term but um the the the, the cashed up the cashed up bogan uh, is kind of a, a phenomenon which is basically a sort of a tradie who's made good a person who's um got a lot of money out of out of um, do ups and and things like that i mean they they're practical people and they follow on from this whole pioneering settler settler uh, white settler culture um a kind of uh, approach to things but i mean that's a kind of the downside or the negative side of of of, of this amazing country that we we live in, it's, it's, or if you like, it's one aspect of it. And we, we did have the idealism associated with uh, Premier uh, um, Richard Seddon and and uh, you know giving giving women one of the first countries to give women the vote, um, and right through until the introduction of MMP in the 1990s, um, New Zealand has been a very idealistic. Country. It's one reason why actually we succumbed to Rogernomics because that was another form of idealism. Although you could argue that Roger Douglas and Co were actually rebelling against their fathers, literally. In the case of Roger Douglas, his father was a Labour MP who introduced socialism um, in the 1930s. So you have, um, you know, you have this, this to and fro, this back and forth, um, a kind of in the dynamic society that's inevitable. I can't really speak for the United States because it's an immensely complex society. 
Uh, 330 million people and 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 an, a very different history to ours um certainly you can sympathize with black lives matter um and with the um the fact that um they have a her- her- uh, heritage of um of slavery to overcome and that if you're a black person in the united states you're you're a second class citizen you know you you you're in fear of your life basically most of the time it's an existential crisis every day for a black person in america even now um we don't have that here so um that it's it's a different world. Um, so that's by way of talking about the background to the billionaire, which is a poem that I don't have handy. I mean, the, a poem that I do have handy, which refers to New Zealand, is, is Autumn Almanac. Autumn Almanac. Okay. I'll read that one. We've got about three minutes. This is called Autumn Almanac, and I wrote it in 2021 uh, in March. March begins, and this isn't Flint, Michigan, this is Waikawaiti, so why the toxic tap flow, chemical warfare creeping through a waterhole, self-harm of farmers in a town called Malice, and all the screens handheld to make you jealous. Way out here on the borders of disorder, things that you look at get smaller and smaller. The price of a house measured in skyrockets, pieces of string in very deep pockets, anonymous veto, not-for-profit's got to go. Marginal is as marginal does at zero times zero. Pete Dutton takes out the trash with compaction, with all the compassion of a bog of liquefaction. In his Jurassic Park mind, his top dinosaur is psychopathic as Mohammed bin bon- Bonesaw. The Bonza ends is sending its marvellous foils over glammed-up bubbles with Pradas on stilts, risen from the wine-dark chops and whip tops of meringue waves that plunge zespy Zespri green by containers stacked like pandemic coffins. Hydrofoil... Sp- Pepper Mill and Salt Grinder, America's Cup Yachts Flying a Blinder till Luna Rossa sinks like a stolen handbag. You are the Alpha and Oprah agog. Check the righteous princess, the Windsor Frog. Lord knows we will never be royals on TV, but at least we got water trucks in Waikawaiiti. Quakes made the ocean dance like Beyonce's booty bounce over from the Kermadex. Everyone hit the decks like nervous wrecks, but it all fell flatter than a souffle. And Queenstown's a limbo dancer in limbo. Go low, go lower, get your lawyer on the blower, the bang on the can brigade, leave the smelter carrying all the aluminium they will ever need for tinfoil tin foil hats and the dross of anti-5G. Destiny and Tamaki are revving up a Harley, oozing oily unction, greasy hair and skin. What he quotes is not quite the Bible, and what he preaches is almost libel. So many contradictory narratives. Anti-vaxxers swear each is an eyewitness. They don't believe in an interventionist jab or in Jacinda Ardern's gift of the gab, but have faith in swarms of microaggressions. Why Mike Hosking in his minute-long sessions, more outlandish, the better they like them. There's Cruella Collins and her 101 damnations, devilish thoughts of COVID-weakened nations, climbing to the top of decline and fall. You will know them by their trail of the dead. Autism, colonialism, evangelism, behaviorism, a shades of the doxology economy, feel the hot breeze of aggressive reason, anarchist or rationalist for the Hollywood lols of Bezos, Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg and the deadly hallows, locked out, locked in, locked up, locked down. When when can everyone go mask-free, town to town? When can the cray-cray king get a new crown? There's the horoscope, the personality quiz, the credit rating and the clickbaiting. i got a gut feeling everyone's waiting. Okay, thanks a lot for your poetry and your thoughts. I hope uh, we got most of that last poem in before the computer shut. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.